Hello and welcome to Open School of Business. Today, I'm so happy to introduce you to Dr. Axel Meyerhofer. He is um, a phenomenal person because for one, he has a PhD in leadership that we talk about a lot. Uh, also, he's the founder of this um, new company. Uh, it's called Ideal Wealth Grower. And we will talk about it uh, during this podcast, and um, he can explain further how this uh, concept of growing your wealth uh, by investing your time and money and energy, obviously, can help you do wonders, especially in this pandemic situation, where I think with the second wave, there is more fear and more worries. So without further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Meyerhofer to our conversation uh, and ask how you're doing today, what uh, is on your agenda for like the next couple of months to wrap up the year. Yeah, hi, Anna. Thank you for having me on the web, uh, podcast. What's on the agenda for the rest of the year? Well, I'm kind of excited to help people to prepare for the coming new year, um, hopefully with an optimistic outlook. At the same time, I'm also serving a lot of clients lately. It's kind of an interesting development. First, when the uh, pandemic's came along, everybody went, it felt to me like a little bit into kind of this, this almost like shock, you know, not moving, not really knowing what to do. And I saw that in the business. And then a few months went along and people that are seeking help, both in the investing area that you mentioned, as well as in general, in, in support consulting and stuff like that, that we do, more and more of them came my way. And um, so I'm very glad to say that we are doing really well and I'm excited to help as many people as I can. Uh, yes, uh, I think um, it's really great that you just mentioned that there was a bit of a freeze and then people started moving and living their lives, uh, getting back to their business, thinking more creatively and pivoting. Uh, so in this idea of pivoting, have you found certain things you've done with your consulting clients or with any of your clients that help them to adapt to this situation with the pandemic and to grow bigger and take advantage maybe in some cases even? Yeah, I think there's a, a little bit of a separation between what I would say, what I've seen and what I'm trying to help people with on the personal behavior side versus specific business aspects. On the personal behavior side, I can clearly see and I'm encouraging people. I've always done it, but it never really landed as well as it has landed now. So if we stay in the terminology of the ideal wealth grower, I would say it's now falling on very fertile ground when it didn't in the past. And what I mean by that is uh, like we are doing right now, I am not very shy about it. You are obviously not shy about it, but many, many people, if you go back even just to last year, were very shy to turn on the video when they did any kind of Skype call, WebEx call, Zoom call or stuff like that. Now that so many people work remotely, this has become much, much more acceptable. And even in, in the corporate arena that I'm working quite a bit, 
there was initially this, okay, yeah, we are on a, on a Zoom call or on a Skype call or stuff like that, but we turn off the video. And I think more and more people realized that you're taking so much of the body language, of the reaction, of the ability to interpret away. So I've become, and I've always been, but now with much more energy because it's actually being accepted, a cheerleader to say, turn on your video, use the screen sharing, do some visuals and stuff like that. And I actually like that, that people are doing it and seeing the benefits. And I think the media, if you ask me, why are we more willing? It's not because our hair is in a better shape or our clothing is any better, but we have been misled. This is my interpretation for year after year after year to believe that you only turn on the video when it's perfect. And the sample or example that we used was the media. When any newscast or so forth, when they had somebody reporting from somewhere, they had all this production with a beautiful studio background and all this stuff going on. So when we basically in our own experience wanted to do something, it always felt like we needed to have all this stuff in place. And now I think for like what, eight or nine months we have seen, you know, like the CNN reporter answering questions or doing a cast from, from home or all these uh, late night show hosts all doing their thing from home. And they have normal homes like you and, and me and they have normal offices and stuff like that. And so this, this, this burden or hurdle or whatever you wanna say, you know, this barrier that you have to either have it perfect or you're not supposed to do it or show anybody. I think that has been reduced a lot and I'm glad about it. I, I mean, as many bad things have happened and, and, and concerning things have happened. That is definitely one thing I would say that has gotten much, much better, that we can actually look into each other's eyes and see is somebody happy, is somebody sad, is the reaction positive or negative. And I, t I have taught in many, many programs how much body language, and especially the face that has the most muscles for body language, is important for communication. And so turning on the video, I think is absolutely a great thing. And the more people that do it, the better for me, you know. Yeah, I think uh, also even for my podcast, when I started, I started it off uh, with only audio. Mm -hmm. And since people don't really commute as much and they don't really listen as much, I decided that I'm going to also open the YouTube channel and people right. can see me and our guests and it's like more fun and exciting. And at the same time, a lot of these interviews now are easier to implement because the location doesn't matter. In the beginning, I stayed mostly within the Washington DC area and I visited physically the people I met for the podcast. And I frankly saying, I miss that because I love the personal touch and seeing yeah. people and it's more eventful, but really it is so much more efficient the way I'm doing it now, because it's a Zoom conversation. I don't have to commute. I don't have to take all of my heavy equipment to some kind of location, set it up. So it's been really good help. Um, can you tell um, our audience about the ideal wealth grower? What are the benefits, how they can get involved? Uh, what do you offer uh, for this um, uh, clients in that sphere? Yeah, I mean, if you don't mind, I, I want to spend maybe a minute or two, give a little bit of a background on how this actually came together. When I started my own business in 2005, uh, and I had 
not too long before that retired from the military, it became clear to me that there isn't really a traditional retirement approach or plan or something like that, that you would otherwise find if you were an employee manager or something like that in, in any kind of business. So I thought, okay, what could I do for myself and started researching and I found real estate and for myself since 2005 have done investments in real estate and got more sophisticated and, and researched more and more and more. And as it is, and I'm sure you experienced this too. I mean, there's a certain network of people that you talk about in, on certain topics, right? You have your personal friends and your business friends and maybe some that are both. And so when I did what's called a pretty large 1031 exchange, meaning like I sold an expensive property and bought a whole bunch of less expensive properties without having to pay um, capital gains taxes on it, people said, wow, this is really amazing. I never even heard that that is possible and you don't have to pay taxes and will you ever have to? And so question after question after question, and then somebody said, you know, since you have all these answers, why don't you put this out for other people to join? So to answer your question, what does Idea Wealth Grower do is basically offering on the one hand, mentoring me, mentoring people directly, basically guiding them through the process of becoming a residential real estate investor, which starts out with saying, okay, we have a complimentary strategy session just to say the approach that I use and I believe has been successful. Is that something that you would like to do? Because some people might find out, yeah, real estate is kind of cool. I want to own apartments or I want to own business, uh, office buildings or I want to invest in a storage facility, all of which are things that I'm not an expert in and therefore wouldn't be a good guide or a good mentor. What we do is basically helping people who say, yeah, I understand it's a good idea to invest in real houses where real people live and have their home. And then there's all kinds of different layers that we can go into in more depth. Right. So the mentoring is one thing. And then, as you said about yourself, what we realized is, OK, people are interested in the information, not necessarily to immediately pay for it, but just to get access. So we have a YouTube channel for Idea Wealth Grower. We have a Twitter account. We have an Instagram account, a Facebook account. We have a Medium account. So what we do, basically, if you look at a week on Monday and Tuesday, we publish um, a new article about the topic of investing for in residential real estate for retirement and for passive income. Then we also have a newsletter. So people that sign up for the newsletter get that. On Wednesday and Friday, we have a new video coming out. The Wednesday one is a short little thing explaining terminology. I found recently that people say the terminology itself is already kind of a weird thing, right? What's IMP and MPI and IRR and all these abbreviations. So Wednesdays, we do like a little five minute video on what these terms mean. And then on Fridays, we have what I would say our main weekly video. And that is about the investing world itself. And what I started recently about six weeks ago is I wrote what I call the mindset manual. And so for your audience, if they're interested, they can go to idealwealthgrower.com forward slash free and download the mindset manual. And it asks for a little code so if they put in ANA, they get the free manual. And then we also now in the process, I think we had episode seven of videos where each part of the mindset manual is basically explained in a video. So you don't just have the document with all the exercises, but I'm explaining what you do, how you do it, how it, how it fits together and so forth. The goal from that is for people to say, I can see 
that there is a duality. The one thing is all the stuff that it falls under the word ideal, which really is an abbreviation and stands for income, depreciation, equity, um, uh, appreciation, and um, leverage. So that's mm -hmm. the word ideal. Right. But the grower, the other part, grower, the last word of the three words is basically how do I grow as a person? And it comes from the coaching world, which before we started recording, remember we talked a little bit about my background in leadership and my studies in coaching. So I grower is actually something that I developed based on John Whitmore's co uh, coaching system that he came out with, which is very common in the business world. And so people who say, okay, now I got the mindset, I understand it, I like the strategy, how do I grow my wealth? The process, the actual activities are being done. And then the third part, um, so you have the ideal understanding that, the growing personally to actually do it. And then the third part is these relationships that I have built with lenders, with insurance companies, with um, companies that actually provide the properties that we buy and invest in and then manage those properties. Instead of somebody, if you were to say, okay, I'm interested now, what do I do? I would say, well, I first introduced you to the concept, but then if you like, you can take advantage of my existing relationships, which doesn't mean you can't go out and find them yourself in like the Washington DC or surrounding area. But if you say, well, I could do this and might make mistakes, why don't I take Axel's relationships, which also gives you the benefits that all the work I had to do to make them into good relationships are already done for you, right? So you don't have to, you're not the new person who suddenly shows up and said, I might want to buy a house, you know, so. Yeah, uh, it's a really great setup because it has so many systems. Mm -hmm. I love that you have the coaching uh, section, you have the relationship that the, with the vendors and with all the companies that are involved in the process already right. ready for your client. Um, so in the sense of actually investing, my question is about, um, do you have to have certain amount of money to put in before you can start uh, buying properties? And what's the minimum uh, range? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the short answer is yes, but it's probably surprisingly less than you expect. I always say what we really want to do, and this is why I created this mindset manual, um, is really to look at it as a journey. And then you want to say, well, if I look at it as a journey, where is the journey going to take me? And there are two points. The one most important one that I think your audience will be interested in is what I call the point of economic independence. And that point is a point in time in the future where you have the freedom to decide if you want to continue doing what you're doing right now or doing other things where the, the question, does it pay me anything so I can pay my bills is no longer the driving factor. Some people also call that the point of freedom where you no longer have to exchange time for money where you can use your time for what you're passionate about. Now, you might find that what you're doing, you love, and it's exactly what you always wanted. It's basically your passion, you just keep doing it. And if you get play, paid plenty for that, great. But a lot of people I found work all day long every day, mainly to make money and not necessarily because it's still the thing that they always wanted to do. 
And so this point of economic uh, independence is to say how much money does have to come in on a regular basis for me to be able to say, I don't have to worry about paying my bills. Now for you in Washington, that might be six, seven, $8,000 a month. For somebody more in the Midwest, it might be two, three, $4,000 a month. So that number is something that we find out through our uh, conversations in the beginning part of the mentoring or of the engagement is let's find out where you are and what is this point that you want to reach? And so then based on that, to come back to your question of how much money is it, our philosophy is not so much based on, I want to buy a house as an investment. It is, we want to find an asset that is performing well. And there are a lot of rules in, 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 in formulas and stuff like that. I've always found the best one that most people can quickly understand is the 1% rule. And the way that works is you look for a property that has all kinds of things like nice neighborhood, uh, good schools, good shopping, good economic environment is a nice property as far as you know, it's not falling apart or anything like that. Or like in our case, we only buy anything that is completely freshly renovated or newly built. Uh, but in any case, so you, you want to find one where you can apply the 1% rule, which for easy calculation means I want to find a property that costs $100,000 and the rental income is $1,000 or 1%. So 1% rule means 1% of the purchase price is what I get every month in rent. And then in the future, it can go more, but that's where you start. So now when you say, okay, well, in Washington DC, there is no place where I can find a $100,000 property that would ever allow me um, to have all these other criteria. I might find one, but you have to defend it with arms and stuff like that, right? So. Mm -hmm. Um, what does that mean? We basically found out that you have to be willing most of the time, unless you live there anyway already, to go into the area where, where those properties exist. And those areas are typically medium-sized metropolitan areas, like, for example, Kansas City, um, Birmingham, Alabama, um, Cleveland, Cincinnati, um, west of Chicago, there's an area called the Quad Cities area. And so there are areas around the country. Memphis is still one of those that falls into that. So they're not these super well-known, really, really big areas. And then the issue becomes, you might say, hey, I, Axel, you live in San Diego. I live in Washington, D.C. How do I actually get involved in a property in Cleveland? Well, that's where our strategy comes in, what we call the out-of-state turnkey provider strategy. And we can dive into it in more detail. But in a nutshell, it means you find an organization or you use the ones I use. I have a handful. That's all you need. Um, that basically finds a property that is suitable in a nice neighborhood. They renovate it completely. Then they sell it to you or me. And then they also manage it. So they find the tenant, they collect the rent, they repair anything. So all under one house, that's why it's called turnkey. Mm -hmm. right? So then all that happens to you. And oftentimes people say, hey, how many do you have? And the answer is 10. So I have 10 of those properties. How much time does it take you to actually handle all of that? And it's probably on average, I would say five hours a month. Right. right? Because, because you have time. all these providers. It's like outsourcing yeah, right. your job yeah, as a real estate Investor. Yeah, I get a report once a month that shows me how each of these properties is performing. And since they have been brand new renovated when I bought them with warranty and everything on it, there isn't that much going on. Now, the good thing is when you actually apply the rules that we describe, we encourage our clients to do as ideal wealth growers.
from day one you own the property, you will have some what's called positive cash flow coming in. So right now, for most properties, it's between two hundred fifty and four hundred dollars, right? So now when we go back to the economic independence number, that means, okay, if I wanted to get, let's say the average would be $300 and I want to get $6,000 a month, I need 20 of those houses. Now you don't go out and buy 20 all at once, but over time, that's why it's a journey. And all the way back to the beginning of your question, you said, how much money do you need? The property I like the best in my portfolio right now cost me $80,000 to buy and not 20 years ago, last year. So what I needed was $17,000 to start. Mm-hmm. That is kind of, I always say somewhere the number for most people is somewhere between 15 and 20. Yes. 20 and uh, it's really great that you mentioned about this hidden gems that people don't necessarily know or even willing to consider. And I think in these times of um, some you know, there is a pandemic going on, there's economic crisis, the uncertainty about the stock market is high, and therefore people are looking for investments. And I think this is the time where you need to be doing something different than what you would normally do. And like you said, definitely, Washington DC is a very difficult market. Uh, I've seen myself, there's a lot of like really highly inflated prices. People who were even thinking to buying a house for themselves, it's very difficult to find something that, like you said, 1% is not possible around here, right? Um, But there are also um, programs that are available for people like first time home buyers that allows like zero down payment strategies. Those are all the different programs available. But when you have already one home where you live as your residential, all these programs are not really, uh, that's not, doesn't make you eligible for those. How about the, like you said about the taxes, if you're buying something as a rental property and you're getting income from it, you have to pay income tax on it, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, well, it's not income tax, but it's a form of income tax. The thing about it is when you think about the property, and that's why I mentioned the meaning of the word ideal in our name, is that a lot of people look at it the same way, like you buy something that pays you something and don't necessarily dive very deep into all the other aspects that play a role, right? So one thing is the L at the of the word idea stands for leverage. So why do I say the number is somewhere between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars? Because when you buy that eighty thousand, ninety thousand, hundred thousand dollar house, you're only putting twenty percent of your own money in, right? So if we stick with that hundred thousand dollar house, you're putting twenty thousand dollars in. The other eighty thousand dollars come from the bank. Now, even though you have a tenant who pays you rent legally on the paperwork you are the owner both of the house as well as the mortgage so the cost of the mortgage is similar to when you own your own house that is an expense that is held against your income the property tax is an expense the um, insurance is an expense any repairs you have on the house even though we always say in the first few years there shouldn't be any but if there were any any cost for the repairs and the property management 
that we pay because we can't be close to that is an expense. So you have all these expenses against, and you have to keep in mind your income after all of that is only $300 or so, maybe $400. Now here's the kicker that a lot of people forget or don't know. The US government says, if you own a residential property, the value of the property can be written against your taxes over a period of 27 and a half years. So it's a little bit of a tricky converse, uh, uh, conversion, but if you say 30 years and you take $100,000, it's about, around about $3,000 a year, right? So if you say, okay, I'm a successful person working in Washington DC, and if you wouldn't be working, you have no income, then you would probably also not be an investor, right? So. That's why I always say, you know, some people say, well, That's if I don't have that, yeah. you have to kind of make some basic assumptions. So if you, let's say, have a tax rate of 25%, right? I think that's not really reaching very high or anything like that. Right. And you have yeah. these $3,000 per year that you can basically write off against it, then one quarter of that or around $750 is what reduces your income and your income is 300 times 12 is 3,600. Right. So half of that or a third of that is already taken care of with the tax depreciation. And then, like I said, all the other things account against it. So in most cases, and I'm not claiming to be a CPA, I have a very good CPA and always recommend for people to do that. But there is a whole bunch of things that you are allowed to do as an investor that you're not allowed to do as a per private person when you just own your personal home. And all these things typically lead to the fact that on that little bit of income that you're making from the house, those $300 per property or $400, you pay either very, very little or nothing. A good That's the thing why I always recommend you want to have a CPA who is familiar with real estate investing. Because when that CPA applies all those things, then uh, your tax rate is very little. And just to give you a little kicker, like the cherry on the icing of the cake, if you say, hey, you know, maybe it's not so bad to go and sit by the lake close to my house in Cincinnati or Cleveland, and you go visit your house once a year, the government says, oh, yeah, Anna, that is completely reasonable. You should visit your investment. The cost for that visit, tax deductible. Right? I see. <laughs> so some people say, well, you know, tell me one of your most exotic investments. The one most exotic investment I have in my portfolio is I own a parcel of a cacao farm in Belize. Now, it's not a huge money maker or anything like that. It has a pretty good rate of return, but it's a tiny investment and, and so forth. Yeah, but, but the travel itself. <laughs> right. Once a yeah. year, I have to look how the cacao is doing on the trees. And the government that's says, oh, that's totally reasonable. You invested in it. You better go and look after it once a year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are the things, like you said, um, people have to really widen their horizons and grow as a person to be able to even consume that kind of information and to be able to see what kind of leverage you can get when you hire the right people for the right job. So you were saying you have all these different social media accounts that you're um, uh, having uh, for people and then you have the relationship with different insurance companies brokers um, all the uh, people who are dealing with the mortgages everything so you have a pretty good network of people 
So how many do you have like in general? And then how many do you actually hire? Like well, what's the ratio between the people you hire and the people you outsource? Right now partners. it's about 50-50. Yeah, I have basically on my team to provide the services that we talked about, you know, like how do we find properties or how do we set the information up on social media? I have a team of five people. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned earlier, I have these five relationships to the different organizations. So I have a lender, I have turnkey providers and I have insurance, right? And I have not just one turnkey provider, but several. So it's basically, a, if you were to say the core team overall is 10, half are basically hired on my team and half are external relationships like service providers that work with us on a regular basis. Yes, uh, I think it's it's really important these days to be able to hire the right people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure for you with a PhD in leadership and given your military background, it's not very difficult. Like, you know how to read the people, how to coach them and um, how to basically uh, invest into your people so that they can flourish and deliver results for you. So as for the entrepreneurs in our community and the managers in our audience, what is like number one advice on hiring and managing people um, to really get the good results for your company? Yeah, I would say the most important thing is the match between what the person you are intending to hire or interview intends to do with their life and what you intend to do with the role that needs to be filled. I was involved in a, in a great book project um, and you can find the book on Amazon. It's called Take Charge of Your Talent. And for anybody who is in this situation that you just mentioned, there is what's called a guided conversation as part of the book, which is 10 questions. And each question has been created by a psychologist to really guide people through these questions as part of an interview to ultimately reveal both to you as the person who wants to fill a position as well as to the person who is applying for the position, do we have a good match? And part of that is to say what, and and it's the terminology might sound a little soft for some people, but it asks things like, what's your heart desire? Where do you see yourself in the future, not just by income or by accomplishment as a title in a company, but really as a person in your own development? And I have had actually several cases where we used this guided conversation. And before we ever really as a team came to discuss, do we want to hire this person or not? The person said, now that I talk to you, I realize I don't want this job anymore. (laughs) I'm not saying this happens all the time, but it is basically a discovery process. And for people that, you know, look for a more concise answer to your question, it's really, you want to find somebody who is excited to do the work that you have to offer, right? And to find out if they are excited, I have discovered, and it's not even so much related to degrees or something like that, that there needs to be a connection to the purpose of what you're doing. So the folks on our team that are hired and and they're not necessarily employees, we hire people as freelancers too because not everything is a full-time job. But what they are excited about most of the time, and I asked them after a few months, you know, we have a little bit of a relationship now, tell me, 
what motivates you, what drives you and stuff like that. Oftentimes they say just this notion of helping somebody who thinks I will never have enough money to actually get to the point where I can do the things I'm passionate about because I know they don't pay. I would love to be a, a painter or an artist, or I would like to do designs, or I would like to play music, but not for money, for passion. Right? And now I, being part of this thing, I'm actually supporting my role, but I'm also seeing the bigger picture. And I, people literally tell me, I have started what we call when we teach an accumulation account. And I always say, you know, you should put at least $500 a month in. If you can do more, do more but also pay the first 10% of any money that comes in into that account, pay yourself first, right? So right. tell me then, oh yeah, actually I'm not just doing the postings or I'm not just putting up and editing the video or whatever, I'm actually doing it. And that shows me this connection and I can only encourage anybody who has to fill any positions for any kind of business service or product or whatever, try to find people who are excited by your purpose. Yes, I think it's so fundamental that a lot of times when people grow and a lot of companies grow, they tend to forget that. And that's where they lose people and that's where they have really high turnover and it becomes a problem. And uh, I, I really connected to that uh, notion of being able to learn on the job, learn something like on top of what you're doing, but more on the purpose. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember one of my favorite books about investing the richest man in Babylon. Mm -hmm. It says that the money has to work for the money and you're working either to make all that system happen or whatever is your passion is. So basically the, the best result in terms of money uh, gets to be alive only when the money is working for you, not when you're working for hourly rate doing certain job that you would usually do. So I, I think this is so exciting. And um, uh, I can only imagine how many people's you've, uh, how many people's lives you've touched and that uh, all the difference that it made for them. I think it's really inspiring. And um, oh, yeah. So, I mean, you, you're right about that. The, the point is that I really lately more and more, and that's where the mindset manual comes back in, try to make people aware that there is no starting point where you have to have a certain level or a certain minimum before you can basically join the club, right? That's why I keep saying it's a journey. You can today, even if you have zero savings, go to a bank, open a, a savings account and say, I call this my accumulation account. And I heard on the podcast with Anna that I should put 500 in, but I can only start with 200 and then 300 and so forth. And what's kind of interesting from a behavior perspective is as soon as we see something actually accumulating, most of the time we get excited about our own ability. And the more disciplined you are, the faster you reach your first goal to the first property. And I actually, I always tell the funny story is it is a journey to get to the first and second and third property. Kind of around that point, I go from being the encouraging force to the holding back force because people get so excited that as others, and I'm sure your audience members have heard and, and experienced this, 
when you get really excited, you start narrowing your focus and you don't see the whole picture anymore. You just want, I want faster, 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 right? So I'm then at some point after the first two or three, I'm starting to hold people back to say, let's not forget our rules. Let's not forget our process. Don't just go out and throw money at a property because it looks good on first glance. The rules still apply, right? Initially, everything is foreign. That's the first property. The second one, it gets a little more familiar. The third one, okay, I think I know what I'm doing. And now the trick becomes stay disciplined, still keep doing it for each one of the ones subsequently. And people sometimes say, well, how long is this journey? And it depends really a little bit on how big your economic independence number is and how much you can put aside. But I would say even for somebody who has very little to start with, you're probably looking at 12 to 15 years. And if you have a little more, then you're looking maybe at eight to 10 years, right? But it's not a lifetime. And think about it. What would you do? That's the question that members that listening to our conversation should ask themselves, how would my life be different if I could say everything that I need to pay for every month, rent and car and food and so forth is all covered so I can take every day eight, nine, 10 hours and do what I really love. What would you do? And that's kind of what I, what I bring or try to bring to people in these grower sessions is to say, what is your big, hairy, audacious goal that you want to really go after if money were no issue anymore? And that is a future that anybody can answer for themselves. And that is also then becoming a motivating force, something that really drives you to get there. And if, you, if you're in your 20s or 30s today and you can say that point for me is when I'm 40 or 45 instead of 60 or 70 or 80 or whatever, you don't have to become a warm mark reader. I think that is a much better vision than you have to work until you're old. Yeah. Right, right. And I think uh, a lot of people mm, do love the idea of being financially independent, not only for themselves, but for the sake of their families, their children. Um, and uh, this is just a, a great, um, you know, the, the one first person in the family to uh, sort of find the key to that lock of wealth and retaining it is not only for themselves because they will be passing it on from generation to generation uh, and really making a difference in their a whole line of uh, uh, children, grandchildren, etc. So I think this is a real big, big thing and big topic and a real big challenge for a lot of people. Um, and uh, I, I see it as leadership, for example, like, I think, like, really getting that puzzle together, uh, finding the key to the wealth question, and making your whole family set for the rest of their lives is like almost like a Pandora's box for a lot of people. And it takes courage and it takes coaching, leadership. Um, and I wanted to talk about leadership with you today, especially because I think um, nowadays a lot of people really have their own opinion about what leadership is. For everyone, leader or leadership skills uh, say different things and mean different things. Um, but since you studied it and you, you know it from the science perspective, can you tell us more about 
really what leadership is and uh, how you can get better at it. If you're someone who, let's say, just a normal person doing your own job and you do want to become a leader. Right. Well, most, most people probably don't necessarily tell themselves what I'm about to say on a regular basis. But when you really think about it, the first level of leadership that we all do without really seeing it or talking about it that way is being the leader of our life. Right? You, you decide what you do with your life. You decide which job you take, you decide where you live, you decide which car you buy, you decide what you spend money on. So all of those are leadership decisions for your own life. Now, then the next level, when you say, okay, so how do I go about this when I, t- when I go one step further, when I'm a leader in a company or maybe even start my own business and, and become a leader that way? It's a twofold thing in my experience. The first one is for yourself, when you say leading your life, what is the thing that motivates you in a certain direction? Because you can basically say, okay, I make a decision based on what the environment is presenting to me. This would be basically transactional type of leadership, which you may have heard about. I'm a big proponent of transformational kind of leadership. And transformational is I recognize a situation or a circumstance right now, and I want to make it different. So when we talk about what we talked about earlier, I recognize where I am financially now, and I see my future in 10 years to have 20 properties, $5,000, $6,000 come in, and I can finally do the painting on the Champs-Élysées in Paris because I don't need to care about where the money comes from, right? So that would be one thing. From a business perspective, when you say, okay, I, you asked me what's Idea Wealth Grow and what's exciting about it is the, the motivation comes from helping other people help themselves to reach that economic independence point. And I can motivate myself with that. I can motivate our team members with that, but I also motivate anybody who is on our external team to say, this is something that is worthwhile, or you can also use the term purpose. So ultimately in the role of a leader, you first need to motivate yourself. So if you don't have a purpose and an idea and a vision that you wanna go to, it's really hard to stay and get up and, and put energy into a certain direction every day. But then the second thing, as soon as you become responsible for other people, whether it's other people that is your family and the family unit, or when it becomes other people that you're either managing or that are people you hired for your business, is how do I motivate them as much as I am motivated for myself to accomplish the vision that we have set, right? And so that is for me the the core tenet. And then when you say, how do I do this? is in my recommendation is you really have to get very clear of what are your principles, right? And some of them have come to you probably through parenting. So as a German person, I always claim there is a DNA, a little bit of a mutation that we have on punctuality, right? So it's just something that I hate when, when people don't have that, even though I know they might not have that gene, but I like to be punctual. I try to be on time every time. And if, if there's any reason I can't be, at least I'll let you know. Right? So that's one thing. But fundamentally, you have to have principles. You have to decide, okay, what are things that are basically rules that I give myself that I'm not going to break? Right? Things, and, and I think it's a little bit unfortunate that we have lived recently through times where it seems like principles don't count anymore. 
right? For me, for example, accountability. I'm accountable for my action and I hold my people accountable for your action, but it's not a surprise. They know this from day one, right? Lying is basically forbidden, right? And there's, I, I have not found anybody who can give me a good reason why you need to lie, especially in business, right? And so forth. So there are things like that. Some people also use terms like ethics and morals, but for me, it's basically principles. And you want to have a foundation of principles. And then um, when you do that and you combine that with, with the motivation towards the goal that you have set or the vision, if you want to use that term, then every time you're in doubt, you can go back to the principles or Elon Musk, which I really admire. He says, everything we do has to be evaluated against first principles. And the, one of the first principles is if it can be made simpler, make it simpler. Right, so I, I chuckle. My wife has been dragged into into my fascination with space and aviation and stuff um, as long as we've been together. And when when they started to do the prototypes for the Starship, the first thing that flew, and Elon actually said that himself, looked like a, um, a water heater. He literally tweeted the first water heater that can fly. And then the <laughs> second thing, the second prototype they made, it looks like a grain silo literally like in the Midwest, just out of stainless steel. And he said the first grain silo that can fly, right? But why do they look like that? Because that's the first simplest principle to put an engine on a thing that holds fuel and shoot it up in the air, right? So, right. Right, so whether you call it first principle or principles in general, but there needs to be a foundation of things because ultimately, especially when you are in the leadership role, people come to you and say, what should I do? And even though I know it's not very polite, I oftentimes say what principle applies for this. And many people, I mean, not so much on our teams, but many people, they say, well, what do you mean? And I don't even, well, if you don't have one, you get one, right? There is not that many. I would say you probably don't need more than five or 10 at the very most. I, I don't think I have even 10, but they are the core things on how you behave and how you act and where do you put your energy and what do you do and what don't you do? And when you have those, they always become the things you come back to. Right. This and it gives you a framework for decision-making because people know what to expect of you. And right. if they don't like it, they don't have to engage with you. So you're um, managing your risk in advance of yeah. attracting the wrong people, wrong circumstances, etc. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, I mean, a lot of people in management and upper leadership positions uh, have initially, when I did co uh, coaching with them, which I'm still offering outside of Idea Wealth uh, Grower, they say, well, I have no time for anything. And I asked them, well, oops, sorry, uh, I asked them, how many um, meetings and stuff do you have? every day and, and they basically say my calendar is full and I said is it different people all the time or the same and it's, it's kind of like a recurring list of the same people and I asked them the third question that is are they asking you really different stuff all the time and there's typically a pause and after the pause the answer is very very often not really so my advice then is if the answer is no it's not really that different to me, that means they have not fully been communicated, have not fully understood how you tick. What are your principles? Because if they knew what your principles are after the third or fourth time at the latest, they will know, I already know what Anna is gonna say, so I'm not gonna go and waste her time. <laughs> yeah, we, we are in a 
interesting corporate culture sometimes when there are recurring meetings happening, literally project updates and things like that. So I understand. Yeah, but that's a little different because yeah. you're advancing a progression. Right. But if you have to have the same meeting to ask yourself, am I still in the right thing? Is the project still aiming for, this, for the right purpose? That's a little different than saying, okay, we have these 20 steps and we are at 15. Now, what do we need to do to get to 60? But right. you need to know what is the last step you want to accomplish. Right? Every project, I mean, I I've, I'm, have been doing this and still do this on a daily basis to say, where do we start? What do we want to accomplish? What are the 100,000, 10,000 steps to get there? But when the questions revolve around, is it the right thing to do? Then I believe the principles have not been established well enough. And I, you will be amazed to hear how many of people in upper management and leadership positions, when I told them, you are the communicator in chief. You need to be out there and you need to encourage your managers to communicate those principles and the vision that's associated with every opportunity they have. Every meeting you start, every PowerPoint slide, always the first slide should have that on it. And you might say people will get tired of it, but they wouldn't because if the ones that get tired, you shouldn't have. Right, right. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah. And uh, I think in that sense, uh, I have a follow-up question on that. What's your opinion? Um, when you're an entrepreneur and you have your principles, it's somewhat clear because you have your principles, you have your vision, and you communicate it to all the employees, and it's very clear. Uh, however, in a corporate world, uh, what does it stand the place to be in the in the corporate culture. For example, the corporate culture has its own principles, its own vision. The company has all this written down. Everyone knows, but yet still the executive um, members of the company, each of them have their own different principles because they're different persons. Right. And therefore, then later the middle management, the directors, the next layer, they have their own principles. And then they're all are trying to communicate the overall principles of the company that's been dictated from the headquarters, from even higher executives. So in that sense, what's your opinion? Do they have to make sure they align it and communicate it? Or is it somewhat of a formal mixed together with the informal because everyone has their own styles and the employees would probably know it but it's also some sort of unconscious level very uh like informal plus the formal and that's why sometimes the formal wouldn't even work because there's so much informal going on and then the all this written values and the mission and the vision of a company just stays there like a written um, like a souvenir pretty much <laughs> so yeah. what's your opinion how do you really make it work when it gets complicated yeah well there's a couple of things first alignment you use that term and that is definitely important you have to constantly ask yourself am I still aligned or not right and it, the more you get to the answer not quite or not really anymore and so forth the more you have to ask yourself if it's still the right place for you now Part of that answer is, if it still looks like the right place, can you change it? That depends on where you are in the pecking order. Or are you not in a position where you can change it? Then you're probably um, getting more and more to the point to say it's no longer aligned. 
and therefore it's becoming a drag rather than an opportunity for motivation and advancement. Now, the other part about it is your own, you as a person, both in your career and as a person, you keep evolving, right? So this notion that we used to have in the past where people join a company like Ford or GM or something like that, and then they are there for 30 years, is basically more the situation of somebody who is just fulfilling a role and is basically hanging their own ideas, their own vision, their own motivation at the door when they move in and walk in every morning. That is where the term you use dictate comes into play. I always say and have said this all my career, when you find that what you do is dictated or forced on you by others and you are not really fully aligned with it, you're not motivated by it, the vision is a stale plaque on the wall that doesn't really mean anything to you, then you should, be, should find a way to get out of it, not from one day to the next, but you should start the search because life is too short. We all have the same amount of time to be involved over and over day, week, month after month in an environment that is not motivating you because as the more you realize that, the less positive energy can you actually apply to the business. So neither you as the person going there every day whether it's remotely or in person and physically, nor the business benefit. If you go to any leader, and I have worked with many, many over the years and ask them, do you want to have people who struggle to do their job because they don't really know if they're aligned with the vision? Everybody says no. Well, then, then the opposite is true too. If you find yourself in that role, you're not helping yourself and you're not helping the company. Find something that is exciting and or re-exciting you and then do that. Right. So, yes. I mean, I, I, I hate to use the term laziness, but there is a certain level of laziness sometimes among people who say, well, it pays the bills. It's what I know. And I do that. I say, well, then you also have to admit that you're too lazy to find something that's really exciting. Right. So at that place, at that point is just comfortable. And then there right. is yeah, no point I mean, in you know, kind of like complaining. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's also then the problem when you say I want to reach an economic independence freedom and I don't want to change time for money anymore, then it takes energy and motivation. Right. So it's right. true for your work. It's the same true, by the way, in all other parts of life. If you want to be successful in sports, it takes energy and motivation. If you want to be successful in your life and create the legacy for your family, it takes energy and motivation. If you want to be successful in your job, you need energy and motivation. So it's not a thing that is just applicable for what you do during work hours. It's every day, right? Do I have the energy and motivation to do what I do? And when you find it no longer being there as much, find something that brings it back. Right. Thank you so much. I think it's so motivational and uh, people would really who are hanging on to the something stable and something boring, they would think about it that because there are other ways to make money, the money should be making the money and uh, you can start by educating yourself and uh, getting the information. There's a lot of free resources on YouTube and other places. So, um, and today uh, we've been so fortunate uh, to have this conversation uh, with Axel and uh, I cannot be happier uh, to introduce your uh, company that's helping people to become uh, independent uh, in terms of 
they're investing and in terms of their retirement. So I encourage everyone to check out Ideal Wealth Grower uh, and uh, even pick up uh, Excel's book. Uh, it's called The Shift in Coaching Dynamics. It will give you an idea on how to achieve the mindset you need before starting the investing, starting being independent financially. Um, so it's been a really wonderful, insightful conversation. Um, and Axel, I would like to give you 30 seconds to just say uh, the summary of your message in terms of uh, financial independence, in terms of leadership and, and living a fulfilling life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't forget you are the leader of your life and you should always look for where can you lead and where are you basically the follower? You're more leading than you think. Number two, I would say is don't think uh, of investors or your opportunity to invest only as something that takes huge amounts of money. Remember, we mentioned 15 to $20,000 gets you started. And the number three thing is it's a journey to the freedom of economic independence and no longer having to exchange time for money. So as soon as you're willing to get on that journey, we recommend, I recommend to get the mindset manual at idrightgrower.com forward slash free. And then just have a conversation with me or with Anna or with anybody you trust to, to talk about these things and then put on paper what your vision is and then follow it. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and we wish you all the success with the very important work you do. Um, and uh, hope to hear from you at some point and we can do another follow-up podcast one day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Thank, Thank you for your time. Yep. Thank you.